0: What's up, y'all? This is Sam Acho, author of the new book, Let the World See You How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. I can't wait to share our conversation. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it.
1: Hello, readers. Matthew McConaughey is an Academy Award winning actor, the Minister of Culture for the City of Austin and University of Texas, a professor at UT, an outlaw philosopher, philanthropist with the Just Keep Living Foundation. Part owner of Austin FC, father of three, husband of one, and now a number one New York Times best selling author. His new book is Green Lights. Matthew, thank you for the time. How are you today? Relatively good, man. We're doing pretty good. Matthew, whether or not you realize that you and I share certain qualities, for one we're both longhorn fans secondly it does seem like our comfort zones exist outside the box Mm. and third we both lived in longview texas in the late 1970s into the early 1980s now i have no recollection of this because i was ages zero to three at the time but you were a little bit older than that why do you credit longview with the place that taught you how to dream
0: well so I, i was born in uvalde all right and for this first nine years of my life in uvalde we left there to come to Longview, which was the booming oil city in the late '70s. We left there, I remember. It was almost 12,000 people in Uvalde, and a Wendys had just moved in. So it was getting too big, right? <laughs> so we moved to Longview, which was about 69,000 people. Dad went from working for somebody else to all of a sudden in Longview having being the boss of 26 men on his oil crew. and he was rolling in the oil business. You know, that line where it taught me to dream is tagged onto a story I have in the book about this 13-story treehouse that I built one summer. It was like that second summer, I think, there in Longview when I lived with my dad in a double-wide trailer and my mom was out of town. I thought on vacation. It actually turns out they were in the middle of their second divorce. But from the top story of that treehouse, 13 stories up where I was above every other pine tree around there, I could see the city of Longview. And in my eyes at that age, what, 10, 11, That Longview was as big a city as I've ever seen. So hence the name Longview at the top of that treehouse. I had a long view. And that's up there when I started to think on my own for summer days, eating my lunch on that 13th story.
1: What could I do? What all's out there? Well, the world's a lot bigger place than I thought it was. Let's go get into it. Speaking of your pops and describing him, you say that rites of passage were a big deal for him with you and your two older brothers, a point emphasized by the stories of that fight between he and your oldest brother, Rooster, and your other brother, Pat, your hero and the inspiration for Wooderson in Days Confused, winning a literal pissing contest for your pops against his drinking buddies at the age of eight. Did you ever succeed or fail in a rite of passage with your pops? Oh, yeah, I failed. I failed the night that I'd
0: been out with a friend of mine who's older than me, and we had our plan was to go to Pete's Hut and we we're going to walk on this pizza, steal it. Well, we did. And I got home that night at midnight, and my dad was on the phone. He was awake, which he was on the phone. I'm like, oh, who's he talking to? And I hear him go, oh, okay, Mr. So-and-so. I won't say the last name, but it was the father of the guy that I'd stole the pizza with. Now, at 51 years old, Let's tell all our youngsters out there. When you come home and your dad is on the phone with the father of the person you stole the pizza from and then ask you directly, did you steal that pizza tonight? It means he knows you did. So just tell him the truth. (laughs) I did not. I said, no, I don't don't think so. I mean, I went outside first and, you know, and then Bud was inside and I think he paid. My dad goes, I'm going to ask you again. Did you steal that pizza? And I was like, uh I, 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 I'm digging myself a hole, right? And so he asked me, like, I think it was three, maybe four times. And he finally said, I, did you know you were going to steal that pizza? And I said, well, no, no. And he gave me a good backhand, which I had earned because I was groveling and lying to his face. And it, his problem with me that night was not that I stole the damn pizza. His problem with me is that I sat there and didn't have the courage to tell him the truth that I did. And that's what broke his heart. And that's why... I, earned what I got that night. And lying was not allowed in our house. And that was a rite of passage that I could have passed if I'd have just told him. Yes, dad, I did. He would have got pissed off. Gosh damn me, but he probably very quickly would have gone into, you gotta learn to get away with it better then, son. (laughs) You know what I mean? But he didn't and I lied to his face four times and that just broke his heart. So that was a rite of passage. I failed.
1: I love the bumper sticker philosophies that you throw out throughout these pages. What's the difference between a bullshitter and a liar?
0: Well, a bullshitter lets you know that he's bullshitting, whether it's through the telling and a slight wink or the innuendo that he throws, or he's just making the story a little bit better, a little more true by adding in some lanyard and a little color commentary. A liar doesn't let you know. It's straight trying to pick your pocket. A liar is trying to take advantage of you. And tell you a non-truth. That's why I say I like bullshitters a whole lot more than liars. A bullshitter is harmless, you know? Oh, it's some good bullshit. He's a good storyteller. Oh, that did isn't how it really happened. But, geez, that's a better version than how it happened. That's a good bullshitter. And there's humor in a bullshit. I don't find much humor in someone straight out lying to me. And my dad didn't find humor in me lying to him that night either. <laughs>
1: I'm going to fast forward a little bit now. You end up deciding to go to the University of Texas. You have a wild experience in Australia prior to that, but people are going to need to read the book to read that story. Two years in at UT, you realize that you no longer wanted to become a lawyer, which is what you had been for those first few semesters studying pre-law. Your heart was now set on film school. But as you point out, making a decision is easy. Implementing it is the hard part. And for you, the latter included the daunting task of telling your old man about your plan. How did you end up telling him about this plan and what was his response?
0: Yeah, so it was the end of my sophomore year, that time where you better figure out what you want to do because you're about to start losing course credits if you change your career path or what you're studying after that. So I was not sleeping well with the idea of becoming a lawyer. I had been writing a lot of short stories. People told me, hey, these are good stories. You should get in storytelling business. What about film school? I said, I want to go to film school. Now I've got to talk to my dad who's paying for school. This is a tricky thing. I think about it. I said, look, I'll call him at seven thirty on this Tuesday night. He'll be home from work. He'll have dinner. He's sitting there. He's having a beer with mom. They're talking about today. That'll be a great time to catch it. So I call him up seven thirty six p.m. I said, hey, Poppy he goes, what's up, little buddy? I said, listen, uh, um, I don't want to go to law school anymore. I want to go to film school. Now I'm breaking a sweat on my end of the phone line waiting for this response, thinking I'm going to hear you want to do what? Mind you, I came from a blue-collar family. You work your way up the ladder. The arts to go to film school, that's not practical you know, at all. Well, what he said, what surprised me, the next words were, are you sure that's what you want to do? And I immediately said, yes, sir, it is. And then there was a five-second pause on the line where I was still sweating it out. And then I heard three of the best words I've ever heard that my dad's ever told me. After five seconds of pause, he goes, don't half-ass it. And with that line, he not only gave me approval to go to film school, he gave me rocket fuel. He gave me privilege and freedom and responsibility to go make it happen. And the fact that he gave me that at that time was one unexpected, but was the best gift he could have ever given me. And it's a great lesson uh, that I've tried to carry with me throughout life. Hey, if you're going to do something, don't half-ass it.
1: Agreed with that, and that eventually leads to you landing the Wooderson role in Days of Confused. Again, people can read the book to hear some of the stories that you tell from that set. Literally, all right, all right, all right is the first words that you spoke into a camera and those words still stick with you so many years later that's very cool as is what happened with you five days in where your father had passed away pretty unexpectedly and what you brought back with you to the set after that very heartfelt stuff and well worth the price of admission for green lights i wanted to fast forward a little bit more because after dazed and confused and also the texas chainsaw massacre reboot you end up moving out to la and moving in with don phillips the producer who Helped get you your in with Days to Confuse. Because of a sense of urgency when you moved out there, you asked Don to introduce you to an agent, but he tells you that you're too needy at that time, that he's not going to help you until you go live your life in a manner that when you come back, you don't need that town anymore. So you went That's with it. a couple of buddies from the Days to Confuse cast to Europe. What happened from there?
0: Well, so we go to Europe, myself, Cole Hauser, and Roy Cochran. We've got our backpacks. We've got economy class tickets to Amsterdam and we're going to head out from there. We've got return tickets probably 25, 30 days later and not much money on us. We decide we want to ride motorcycles across Europe. We find this great motorcycle shop in Rosenheim, Germany, and we pull up and this guy's name is Johan, who runs the place. We tell him what we want to do. We want to ride across call. Sure, he brings up, oh, well, let's look at the best bikes. And we go around, we look at these bikes. My buddy Cole looks at this Kawasaki 1000, brand new, big hog of a bike. Rory looks at this badass Ducati, brand new. And I look at this BMW Enduro 450 because I've grown up on dirt bikes. I felt more comfortable on a Enduro bike. And he was like, yes, these are great bikes for you. These are perfect for your trip. And we said, okay, well, how much? And all of a sudden, he lays down this bill. I was like, $12,000. We're like, whoa, okay, okay, okay. We're over our skis here. We don't have $500 a piece. We can't do this. You have some used bikes or what have you. Now, mind you, Johan had his hairy, armpitted wife there next to him, who at this point starts to nod her head because she sees where this is going to go because she knows her husband. And what does Johan do? He did one of the most minch moves ever. He says, look, don't pay for the bikes. You must take these bikes, though, and go ride because when I was your age, I rode across Europe with my friends. And it's one of the best times I've ever, ever had in my life. You three young American men need to take these bikes and ride. Well, his wife did not like this idea. She was evidently the one dealing with the finances. She's going, no, 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 you're, no. And he's like, hang on. And I remember offering up going, look, to try and acquiesce the situation. I go, look. Thank you. And here's our return tickets. Here's our economy class return tickets to America from Amsterdam. 25 days from now. Can you hold those for insurance? He goes, I don't even need these for insurance. You just go take the motorcycles and ride. We were like, are you freaking kidding me? What a gift. Well, we took those bikes and on the way out his wife, the hairy armpit wife did come and say, I'll take the tickets. (laughs) So we gave her the tickets and we rode out of there. All out of that parking lot. had one of the greatest trips of our life, riding all across Europe. We left Johan in the driveway of his motorcycle shop. He was getting his ass eaten out by his his wife. wife, he was like, you dumbass. Anyway, we rode great. On that trip, 13 days into it, Rory laid the Ducati down on the autobahn, totaled it. He got out of there with the repairs. It was scrapes and a little night in the hospital. Totaled the brand new Ducati. He calls Johan from where we were down in Levante, Italy. Johan, I totaled the bike. Johan's first question was, are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm okay, but I totaled the Ducati, the brand new Ducati. Johan says, give me the address where you are. I'll come down tomorrow at the truck and pick up the bike. Well, the next day, we're out in this field by this total Ducati, and here comes this big truck, cargo truck. Johan driving it, comes to pick up the bike. He opens up the back end. Me and my buddies, me and Colin Roy, start to pick up the bike to start moving in the back end. But before we can put it in the truck, guess what Johan does? He rolls out a brand new Ducati and says, here, keep on riding. I'm glad you're okay. You must keep riding. I mean, you talk about a minch. <laughs> that guy was a minch. So I came back to LA 30 days later, didn't give a damn. About needing to get an agent. Didn't feel like I needed to do anything. I just had these great life stories and was not consumed with, oh, I need to get an agent. I got to get somebody. And that's when Don, wise old Don Phillips, says, You're ready. I got ready for what? He goes, Tomorrow morning, meeting at William Morris. You want it, you don't need it. And that's why you're ready. And we went in, had the meeting. They represented me. The first two auditions in Hollywood, I got two weeks later.
1: These experiences that help to reset your mind have been crucial throughout your life. And I want to talk about another one in just a few minutes. Prior to that, though, speaking of the opposite of Minch, you told your side of the story from the well-known naked bongo arrest here in Austin in 1999. As someone who spent a lot of time on 6th Street in the late 90s and early 2000s, it's not at all shocking to hear that some meatheads within the APD were acting like a bunch of ass clowns around the turn of the century. What is your (laughs) recollection of what happened that night?
0: Well, I have a very detailed description that I think is absolutely hilarious in the book. We had just the Saturday before. Now, mind you, this was Monday morning, 2.36 a.m. If we could retrofit that and go back through Sunday night, Sunday, Saturday morning, Saturday night into Saturday afternoon when Texas had just beat Nebraska, I had been celebrating. And so this night day and a half later, however many hours later, I just said, okay, that's enough. I'm tired. I'm going to wind down. So I'm uh, down in my birthday suit. I got my congas out. I've got the window open. got Jasmine garden out there. The breeze is blowing it in. Load up a bowl. Going to have a little uh, jam session. Well, while I'm jamming, minding my own business, all of a sudden I look up and there's flashlights in my face and these two blue suits come in, barging in my house. And as I go to resist, next thing I know, I'm on the ground, arm pinned behind my back, knee in my back. And this one cop, I won't say his name, but he was very excited when he picked up my ID off the table and said, oh, look at who we got here. I remember that just ticking me off because I could tell now he was like, oh, I've got a prize. I've got a gym here. This is going to be a great arrest. Well, kept on trying to resist. And as they were going to take me downtown, now they had to, they were like, you want to put some clothes on? And I was adamant. Absolutely not. My neck in this is proof. That I'm minding my own business. That was my thought process, my logic at the time, right? So we get outside, they offer a blanket. I'm like, absolutely not. There's five cop cars out in the street. There's 40 of my neighbors. I'm yelling to everybody, this is proof. I'm buck naked. I was minding my own business. These son of a bitch up my house. I yelled it to anyone who would hear and anyone two blocks over who couldn't hear. So I'm going down to the precinct. We get to the precinct. You sure you don't want some clothes? No, I'm telling you, I'm no, you already heard me. I'm not covering up. This is proof. And that's when an inmate came out and met me at the steps at the doors before I went into the precinct. And he was holding a pair of cotton, you know, jail pants. And he walked up to me, held them, looked at me. And I just looked at him. I said, no, man, proof of my innocence, man. (laughs) And he seemed to understand. (laughs) But he said, man, we're all innocent. Trust me. You do want to put these on. And I think the fact that he (laughs) he was he was also a jailbird telling me you do want to put these pants on. He was the first guy I trusted. And I said, thank you. And he knelt down, stuck my legs in him and shimmied them up me and put them around my waist. And I went in and spent the next nine hours in jail. And then I got up the next morning or hadn't gone to sleep yet. Stayed up that night through jail. My celebratory buzz now turning into somewhat of a hangover. I did not like the fact that I had ended up in jail, but I was fine with how and why i ended up in jail so i said look what i got arrested for is something i've done before something i'll do again but i was not raised to end up in jail i remember even thinking of my dad going i don't care you got caught whatever it was you didn't get away with it so that felt crappy but got out got out of there on a fifty dollar Fine. The judge looked at it and was like, I don't understand how a noise complaint turned into resisting arrest. This number doesn't make sense. Their story didn't match good reason why it turned into that. $50 and I was a free man. And then I could go to the garage and get a private ride home. Or I could take a left and go out to the curb and meet the press. And I decided to take a left. And when I met the press, and I don't remember what I said, but we all laughed a lot. Even the press got the joke. (laughs) And the next day, there were bongo naked t-shirts all over Austin.
1: Yeah, that's called owning it, and uh, I think your dad would be pretty proud of that. Now, totally separate, got to make that clear, totally separate, you describe having a non-sexual wet dream on two different occasions that sent you to a different continent each time. Yeah. The first time you make your way to the Amazon in South America, people can read green lights to learn how it helped you become more present. I wanted to ask about the second time you experienced this dream. When you set out for Africa, we're at a pretty crucial point in history right now where people are having a hard time conversing with others who offer opposing viewpoints. What did you learn on that trip about the true point of debate, even a debate bordering on an argument? Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm going
0: to try to bring it to more present times because I think it's more pertinent. And you want to hear the African story, you can go read the book. But we're at a great time of distrust right now. We're at a great time of not knowing who to believe. We don't trust our leadership. If we don't trust and believe in others, all of a sudden we find ourselves not trusting and believing in ourselves. You have to have confrontation to have any kind of unity. But I venture to say we actually don't even have true confrontation right now. The beauty of democracy is you have two sides that may confront each other, but that's part of democracy, a push and a pull in a relationship. Right now, the left and the right are so far to the extremes. And the reason I say I don't even think it's true confrontation is because if you have true confrontation, you have to own the fact that the opposing side exists and is real, and has a valid opinion for themselves. We completely are so far the opposite. We are invalidating the other side. We are making the other side someone who opposes our thoughts. We are illegitimizing them, making them almost persona non grata, sloughing them off as absolute fools. How could you think that? You're an idiot, you don't exist. That's not true confrontation. If you don't even acknowledge the other person's point of view exists, and so we've got to start coming up, and when I say meet you in the middle, that's not a passive move. That's an aggressive move. We need to aggressively go to the center and at least sit down, as Roy Spence says, on our front porch again and sit across the table and go, hey, I'm a far right conservative. And I'm going to sit here and talk to the person who believes in socialism. Those people need to have that conversation, not that they have to agree, but have the damn conversation again. That's true confrontation. That's owning up to it, not illegitimizing the opposite side as non-existent.
1: Yeah, no name calling, no need to try and smear the other person. You don't even have to agree with them when it's all said and done. It's understanding the other side of a conversation.
0: Just to understand it. And at the very simple level, it's hard to legitimize a man if you've looked him in the eye and had a conversation with him. You don't have to agree, but they have a legitimacy in their point of view. And everybody has a different background about how they've got here. Look at the nation right now where everyone voted. We are not past the Civil War. Look at the states, red and blue. It looks like the Civil War. Very similar. It's a snapshot. So in this name, I think we've evolved. No, 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 no. We we got a long way to go. and We got building to do to get out of this. And I'll meet you in the middle on that, is what I say. Because right now, somebody told me the other day, yeah, you want to meet me in the middle? Well, ain't nothing in the middle but yellow lines and dead armadillos. I said, listen, man, the left and the right are so far from the middle right now that their tires are not even on the asphalt anymore. (laughs) they're in the dirt on the other sides of the shoulders. So we got to come back together here and start at least legitimizing and understanding and discussing with each other, or we're going to look up and this whole grand experiment called America will not have worked.
1: So I really enjoyed reading about the bet that you made on yourself in 2008, where you decided to go totally against the rom-coms, your bread and butter for more challenging roles. Of course, this ends up leading to the reconnaissance and people can read the book to find out where that term came from. (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed a a lot that you've done on this planet as an actor. True Detective season one might be at the top of that list, and it was really cool to learn that you chose to take that series in for the very first time like the rest of us, watching a new new episode every Sunday night. My favorite episode in that first season was episode four, Who Goes There, which mm-hmm. sees Cole infiltrate the Iron Crusaders and go along on a robbery of a rival gang that goes way off the rails. How difficult was that single shot of the foiled robbery attempt and your escape from the hood at the end of that episode?
0: Yeah, very difficult. Look, that shot, Carrie Fukunaga, the director, had been choreographing the realities of getting that shot done well in pre-production so mind you we're season four we didn't were not going to shoot it until we were like three and a half four months into shooting but that was on his board in his office months before we even started shooting how's this going to work we would sneak off coming up about six weeks out we all went out and just had a walk through. You bring all the, the actors, but you bring all the teams. You bring special effects, you bring the grips, you bring everybody. So you start to see where the piece is gonna be placed, what's our timing. So it was choreographed like a dance. And then we go back each weekend for five weeks until it was time to shoot it. And each time you go back, you speed up the process a little bit. They said, okay, we walk through that one and now let's do this one where we kind of go half speed through it. And then you work with, now let's go three quarter speed. And just calling out the shots. Okay, boom, I go here. Rustin takes a right hook and knocks this guy down. When he does that, he ducks because there's a shot coming from his buddy that's going to go right over his head. So if I don't duck, that squib in the wall behind me is going to go off in my head and I'm going to lose my hearing or worse. So we're calling things out, working out the whole dance. Now, the whole shot takes seven minutes, I think, and 14 seconds. So that night when we shot it, we shot the scene seven times. Each time we shot it, it was thoroughly exhausting. By take five, six, seven My clothes didn't look like they were sweated out because there were no sweat rings. That's because they were fully drenched in sweat that they had just become a darker color. There was no dry spot. Well, we got to take seven. I think it was take eight that we came in the initial scene, break in the living room, and a squib went off early right over my ear. And a guy who was supposed to swing a gun barrel at a guy and miss him by about six inches clipped the guy's shoulder. And I remember going, cut. All right, cut, 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 cut. Wait, 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 wait. Everyone is exhausted. Even the pyrotechnics are exhausted. Our timing's off. Something gnarly and bad could go down here right now. We need to back up. And we all went over and Carrie, the director, looked at the takes and was like, okay, I've got it. I think I got it. I think it was take five that he used. And we said, let's call it because it was about to get dangerous. There were just so many moving parts and people had to be really acutely aware in their heads. And everyone's fatigued. So we got it, though, in take five.
1: Wow. Well, the finished product was incredible. I think the week that that episode came out, I may not have watched anything else that week except for going back and watching that episode and that final seven plus minutes over and over again. So kudos on that. And last thing, Matthew, before I let you go, I did want to ask you your thoughts on the eyes of Texas. I've heard you talk a little bit about this and the numerous yeah. interviews that you've done for Green Lights, but I think it's important that we get your thoughts on this subject on yeah. the Austin airwaves. Obviously, That's this good. song has been going through a lot of debate, speaking of debate, over the last several months now. What does the Eyes of Texas mean to you?
0: The Eyes of Texas means to me a sort of halo of excellence and expectations over those of us that are an alumni of the University of Texas at Austin Longhorns. It is an expectation. It is a song that we sing in victory and defeat. And I love that we sing it in defeat as well, because it is us saying we may have lost the battle But we're going to win the war. And part of the war of a longstanding season or the longevity of any university is you will lose battles on certain Saturdays or whatever that night that game is played or even graduations. It's a reminder of the long view. So it's a halo of excellence and expectations that we have at the University of Texas that is a good kick in the backside to say, hey, I can do better. Now, its origins have come to light disagree and don't like the origins. My hope though, where I my gut is on this is to use the terms from the song, the eyes of Texas. If we have a problem with how someone sees in the name of rehabilitation, let's not gouge the eyes. Let's change how they see. So I am not denying and will not deny nor should we deny the origins of the song. But at the same time, we have to embrace and admit and even inspire that we hijacked it. It's like that Beatles song, the old Rattle and Hum, U2 has that song, um, Helter Skelter, and it said, hey, Manson, you stole it from the Beatles, we're stealing it back we stole it from that. And we have to remember where it came from. But I think even say, if we could go forward and go, no, the song means something different. It has meant something different for a while. And we need to make it even be more of a difference to what we deem excellent in racial justice and righteousness and everything. But my gut is, let's not get rid of the song. Let's just change how the way the eyes see. That's my feeling on it. And there's a lot of discussion now, very important that we have these discussions. And we're trying to redefine and define the word rehabilitation. If you get rid of the eyes of Texas, how many more things you go back? How many more songs become illegitimized? How much do we allow that people and meanings for things have changed over time? I do think it's really important that there's a light been shined on where the origins of that song came from. But I also hope that we can see that, hey, no, we stole it from that. That's not who we are. And that's gonna give us purpose moving forward in the redefinition and the expectation of excellence that that song gives us
1: it is a very slippery slope and you're absolutely right it's dangerous to take things that have become more than a net positive that maybe had ugly beginnings but really have turned into that rallying cry and a show that win or lose good or bad we here at texas to you fellow longhorns we have your backs well we evolve and part of evolution can be getting rid
0: of something But a large part of evolution and rehabilitation is you grow you become something i've got things i've done in my own past we all have personal things in our past where we go that was not my best oh boy that moment when i failed or was ugly or was mean or was evil or a cynic it's not who i am you know it's like when you call somebody i teach my kids this if somebody tells a non-truth you don't call them a liar You say, no, you lied. That was a lie. And there's a difference than pointing out a certain problem at a certain time for someone or a song or something else than saying, I'm throwing a complete blanket over it and saying, that's bad. You're bad. You're wrong. You're a liar. You shouldn't
1: exist. There's a difference. Very well said. Matthew McConaughey is an Academy Award-winning actor, the Minister of Culture for the City of Austin and University of Texas, professor at UT, an outlaw philosopher, philanthropist for the Just Keep Living Foundation, part owner of Austin FC, father of three, husband of one, and now a number one New York Times bestselling author. His new book is Green Lights. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Matthew, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this entertaining book. All right, hook em. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.